Hey, I just wanted to let you know that your lady in labor and delivery room four, she's doing great. She got her epidural about an hour ago. She did have a temperature of 38.5, but you know, her uterine fundus isn't tender. There's no foul smelling vaginal discharge. Baby's non-tacky. So I think it's just isolated maternal fever. And I don't think we need to treat that. Anyway, I'm just letting you know about that temp 38.5. I did actually check it 30 minutes before that, and it was still 38.5. But again, I still think it's isolated maternal temperature, so I think we're good. Anyway, just giving you a quick progress report. Well, that's how these phone calls kind of go, don't they? I've gotten these calls. Don't worry. It's an epidural-related fever. Baby's non-tacky. It's just isolated. I don't think we need to give antibiotics for that. And that always makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Plus, that's absolutely not what ACOG recommends. We're going to get into that in a minute because this was actually very clearly spelled out in the August 2017 committee opinion, which was number 712, on inter part of management of intraamniotic infection. All right, we're going to talk about that committee opinion as well. But there's a brand new publication that is coming out November the 1st that is a 10-year retrospective study on the clinical outcomes, on what happens both to mom and to the baby in cases of, quote, isolated maternal fever, end quote. And we're going to define that very clearly in this episode. So here's a question. First, can epidural alone cause a a temperature elevation? Now, if you remember and you've listened to our episode frequently or faithfully, which we hope you do, we actually covered that in May of this year, on May the 3rd, actually. So go back and listen to that called ERMF, ERMF, that is epidural-related maternal fever. And we go through the whole science and we covered two uh, publications that had been just hot off the press at that time. Uh, one of them was by, uh, by Selena Patel. So you got to go back and look at that at that publication. Uh, in the Gray Journal and listen back to our previous episode. But here's the question. Number one, can epidurals cause fever? The short answer is absolutely. But here's a bigger question. Can we distinguish who has an epidural-related fever versus those who have something else, which is truly infectious, versus something just inflammatory? And then number three, this is where we're going in this episode, does it actually matter what we do with those, quote, isolated maternal fevers, end quote, meaning temperature elevation, but no other signs or symptoms of clinical infection. Well, now we have a piece. Now we have some data that's going to guide us one way or the other. All right. And just to give you a spoiler, this actually vindicates, this validates the ACOG committee opinion, which was August 2017, because it told us what to do back then. But now we actually have the proof. Yes, it actually took like six years later to get that. But this was, again, a 10-year retrospective study that we're going to highlight. This new publication coming out in November we will give you all the details coming up right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Never know how much I love you 
never know how much I care When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard to bear You give me fever When you kiss me, fever when you hold me tight Fever in the morning A fever all through Okay, we've got lots to cover here and a lot of pieces of the puzzle to put together. But I do want to remind you, probably, probably a good idea to put the brakes on this one and then go back and listen to May the 3rd, which was ERMF, because we we really spell out all the stuff there about the pathophysiology, about how the, the chain of command actually works for, for epidural. And again, Shiv Sharma at UT Southwestern back in the day was an incredible, oh, just an incredible anesthesiologist, uh, uh, perinatal um, uh, anesthesiologist, and just brilliant. He did a, long, a lot of this work with Dr. Bloom. And... Uh, and I remember I was a uh, both a medical student and, and a resident at that time. They're like, look, there's no question that epidural has pathophysiology uh, and, and some effects on on the uh, pyretic system of the body to trigger this quote sterile inflammatory response. And it's deeper than that, but just go with that for now. That that can give you fever. That's legit. So if somebody ever asks you, hey, can epidural alone give you fever? Oh, there's no question. We know that. And, and there's various uh, uh, interleukins and antipyretic factors that get reduced. There's different factors here at play that can cause that. So that's a yeah. We know that. Here's the deeper question or question sub A1 or whatever. Sub A1. Is that a thing, Mike? Is that A, little, little A? Whatever. Remember those outline things? Big A and then little A uh, or subunit one. I hated those things. Just write down your things with little bullet points. Anyway, uh, here's a deeper question under that one. How can you tell if it's epidural-related maternal fever or something truly infectious? Without doing like an amnio where you tap and you look for, you know, uh, amniotic fluid glucose levels or gram stain, uh, interleukin levels. Yeah, that's going to come back real quick intrapartum. And we cover all of this debacle, all of this debate, which goes back to the 90s in that May 3rd episode. Okay, so shout out to my Parkland peeps uh, who helped contribute to a lot of that data uh, for epidural related maternal fever. And there was a separate gray journal article back in May of this year that that's the whole purpose that we did that episode. You got to go back uh, and listen to that. So the whole question is, can epidural give you fever? Yes. Are you absolutely sure it's just the epidural? Uh, no, I don't know how to do that. There's no way to discriminate to pick out who has epidural related fever versus who has something truly infectious. So that's that's the, that's already ahead of the game here. I'm already trying to get to the end before we've even started. But that's the synopsis of the May 3rd episode. OK, now for all the details, you can go back and listen to it. But deeper than that is, is this related issue, even epidural related fever, guys, that doesn't seem to be infectious unless there's some sort of other labor abnormality where you get prolonged rupture, uh, you know, prolonged use of internals, the same typical thing that gives you risk factors for intramniotic infection. Um, There is data that fever of any etiology, just fever period, can give you some altered neurodevelopment in the child, especially if prolonged. And, And here's the reason why. What is fever? I mean, what causes fever in the body, right? Fever in the body is caused by pro-inflammatory substances, uh, uh, things that elevate the body's temperature 
which are all tied to interleukins uh, and, and pyretic substances. And this is the issue here that that's at play. It's it's that fever is the clinical sign of something that's happening behind the the veil, and those players behind the veil are are, are what potentially can cause altered neurodevelopment. Okay, so you get that. So yes, epidural can give you fever by an inflammatory response. Good, not infectious. I dig it. I get that, but fever in and of itself, intrapartum and. Fever in and of itself, period, antepartum, especially non-diagnosed and not treated correctly, could be a marker, especially if sustained, okay? So, yes, I get it. Epidural-related fever can give you non-infectious fever. It's an inflammatory cascade. There's a great review, again, that we did on May the 3rd. I'm a little biased, though, but it is pretty darn good. Uh, yeah, I get that. But it's fever in and of itself. Now, think about it. If you take your right hand, okay, take your right hand. Uh, and that's infectious etiology. Put your left hand, and that's inflammatory etiology, and then they meet in the middle, right? So come together like a clap. What's in the middle? In, that, that's the same issue there. That is inflammatory markers. So whatever is the initial cause, they're going to meet in the same pathway. They're going to meet in the same road here. They're going to converge in the same highway because those inflammatory mediators, whatever sparked it, whether it was bacteria or an inflammatory poke of the of the epidural space or whatever, whatever, uh, then that's going to lead to those inflammatory markers that are potentially the issue uh, that's harming neurodevelopment. And there's all this complicated, I mean, 20 years plus of complicated data saying, yeah, look, fever is bad. You know, there's outside of, and, and it also is degrees, right? The degree of fever that can not only just alter uh, uh, proteins and, and alter neural uh, cells and progenitor cells, but, but there's some epigenetic changes that has even been linked to things like autism spectrum disorder. Uh, because of that inflammatory environment. So we know that inflammatory environment, period, which leads to the clinical manifestation of fever with or without other signs, guys. Y'all see, that's where we're getting at. Fever in and of itself, a.k.a. isolated maternal fever, probably needs to be treated to prevent issues. And when I mean probably, the authors of this new publication coming out in November of 2023, coming out this month, well, that's, we're taping this on October the 31st. So whether we finish it today, Mike, or tomorrow, whatever we decide to do, uh, it's going to be coming out soon uh, in the Gray Journal. That That's the emphasis here is that unless we have a way to really piece out what is not really infectious versus not infectious and, and a way to really decide that one is better than the other or not as bad as the other, we don't have that ability. So we should consider all temperature intrapartum as potentially infectious, and this 10-year retrospective study, that's a long time, guys. Most retrospective studies, right, where do they go? A year, two years, sometimes five years. This was a 10-year retrospective study that showed that, uh, hey, this isolated maternal temperature thing, those clinical outcomes actually are worse than those with documented intra-amniotic infection, IAI. Like, well, how is that possible? Well, easy. Who gets who gets the love? Who's going to get the attention? IAI, right? Those that have true clinical intramniotic infection because they get the dual antibiotics, they follow guidelines. But those who have eh, just isolated maternal fever either don't get anything or like according to this study and their protocol, got a single antibiotic agent. We're going to discuss that, okay? Because at this at this location, and we'll talk about in a minute, uh, it was a single antibiotic, very narrow spectrum, if they had isolated maternal temperature, and, and that probably led to resistance or 
uh, um, to basically unmask other infections. Okay, so their take home point, as we just get to it here very quickly, just so we know where we're going, we're setting our roadmap here, is that isolated maternal temperature, high fever, which we'll define in a minute, without any other signs or symptoms, or persistent low-grade fever, that you should probably just assume is infectious and treat it like you would intramniotic infection with dual agents, aka ampicillin and gentamicin. All right, because those that did that um, did better than those who had single agent uh, treatment for isolated maternal fever. All right. Now, you let me just be very clear. Please do what you're supposed to do at your institution, whatever your policy and procedures is. But if your policy and procedures right now is, hey, isolated maternal temperature, you probably don't need to treat it. Just watch it at the next time that that is being brought for revision. Probably a good point to bring up is. How do we know that that's not bad? Well, we now have a 10-year retrospective data from the Gray Journal. I was published in November 2023 that says, uh, yeah, those actually do worse because they, they you get behind the ball in terms of antibiotic coverage. Fever of any etiology is a marker. Fever of any etiology is bad for the child. Fever of any etiology, especially sub uh, treated, uh, suboptimally treated or not treated at all leads to postpartum complications. That's the take home. All right. Now we were supposed to do this very piecemeal, but I just, I just had to drop that, that clinical pearl right at the beginning because this really is a big deal. Now that we've done that, and before I get ahead of myself anymore, let's go back to that ACOG committee opinion, which was August 2017. That's number 712. And we're going to talk about the three different types of fever intrapartum. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, everyone. Let's start with uh, the committee opinion 712 from August 2017. Now, there's a lot of really good points in here, but the, the main take-home is things that we always say in labor and delivery. Oh, she's got a temperature. She's got choreo. Uh, and I get that. That's fine. But how do we know she has choreo? I mean, we really don't know that, right? Chorioamnionitis, by definition, chorioamnionitis is inflammation of the amnion and the chorion, which is a histology term. You need, you need path to let you know that. And that doesn't happen until the baby's born. He's in the placenta for pathological eval. So ACOG really gave us these three boxes in this committee opinion, all right? The first box was what we're talking about here, which is isolated maternal fever, which obviously could be epidural-related, ERMF, but isolated maternal fever is a fever that's either 39 degrees Celsius one time or 38 degrees to 38.9 that is persistent after 30 minutes, all right? That is isolated maternal fever with nothing else going on. No uterine tenderness, no fetal tachycardia, no foul smelling lochia, no uh, leukocytosis. We'll discuss all those in a minute. That's isolated maternal fever, either one temp 39 or a temp of 38 degrees to 38.9 that stays for 30 minutes without antipyretics. 
Let me say that again. I've gotten this call, guys, many times over 23 years in practice. It goes like this. Hey, Dr. Chapa, I just want to let you know your patient's temperature is fine now. Uh, but, you know, 30 minutes ago, it was, you know, 38. But I gave her some Tylenol, so it's back down. Wait, wait, I'm, I'm sorry, what? Oh, I gave her Tylenol and her temperature, it's back down now. Well, well, of course it's back down. I mean, that's, so all you've told me is that you've proven that Tylenol is an antipyretic. Thank you for that. We've known that for 60 years. That's phenomenal. But, oh my goodness, why didn't you tell me she had temperature? Well, we're supposed to recheck it in 30 minutes. Yeah, by itself, not with an antipyretic. What do you think is going to happen? Of course it's going to go down. So, so the rule of isolated maternal fever is 39 degrees or 38 to 38.9 without medicine that stays there for uh, for 30 minutes. That's isolated. Then there's confirmed, which is either sending off the pathology, uh, the placenta to path, and they tell you, oh, I see chorioamnionitis. Fantastic. But baby's out. I appreciate that, though. Or intrapartum, which is doing the tap like we discussed, uh, sending the fluid for gram stain, uh, interleukins, and... Um, uh, you know, culture, which, yeah, that's not realistic. Could you imagine, ma'am, I know you're having labor pains. I know you're in discomfort. Can I stick a needle into your abdomen to suck out some fluid from your amniotic sac? It'll just be super brief. Yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I mean, just, it, it, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, it's definitely not going to happen in the U.S., I think. I mean, that's just, unless you're really looking for something really odd, all right? And, and it has happened, so I guess I should say it never happens. Happens very rarely. How about that? So that is confirmed IAI, either based on amniotic fluid studies or histopathology. So we don't really have any truly confirmed. Most of them are going to fall into the third category, which is suspected, which is maternal temp of 38 degrees or more and one of these other clinical factors, which is maternal leukocytosis, which is Highly sensitive, but non-specific because leukocytosis, and we've covered this in other episodes, that starts early on in the first trimester, peaks at around second trimester, and then peaks again, and then takes another bump up uh, in labor as the body gets ready, right? Those are its warriors. The stress response causes more demargination uh, as the body prepares for, for uh, physiological battle and stress of, of labor. So super sensitive, but not specific. The next one is fetal tachycardia. Very, very uh, good marker of intramniotic infection, excluding uh, fetal arrhythmias. And then the third is purulent uh, discharge. Notice that one of those factors is not uterine tenderness. Now, why is that? Uh, come on, guys. How many times have you really seen uterine tenderness? I mean, be honest. I mean, first of all, my patients all have BMI toxicity. Y'all know what BMI toxicity is. That's when it's over 40 or 45. And I'm not touching the fundus. I mean, give me a, really? I mean, you, we're, just, we're just not touching the fundus, right? Now, in very severe purulent infections, yes, the, the abdomen with a low BMI patient absolutely has some discomfort. I'm, I'm not saying it never happens. I'm saying with our current BMI situation in the U.S., sometimes uterine tenderness is very difficult to assess. Why don't we just leave it at that? And that's why, uh, honestly, uterine tenderness is not one of the clinical factors that's discussed uh, for suspected intramniotic infection. The factors that are given there, let me read it to you right here from ACOF, from the Committee of Opinion. Suspected intramniotic infection is based on clinical, clinical criteria, which includes maternal intrapartum fever and one or more of the following, maternal leukocytosis, purulent cervical discharge, or fetal tachycardia. That's it. It does not reference uterine fundal tenderness. All right, everyone, I know that I've mentioned this before, but I really do like this other term rather than 
intraamniotic infection, this whole idea of the triple I. And so just as point of reference, even though, as we said, this was originally published around the same time as a committee opinion as an EPUB, and it is referenced in that ACOG uh, committee opinion from uh, from August. This is a separate publication on the triple I. They came out of uh, Pediatrics and Neonatology, June of 2018. The title is, as you would expect, Intrauterine Inflammation, Infection, or Both, the Triple I, a New Concept for Chorioamnionitis. Once again, that journal is Pediatric Neonatology, and that came out in June 2018 with an EPUB ahead of print, uh, September 2017. This whole issue of isolated fever that, even though it may be epidural-related and inflammatory, this whole notion that this is a big deal is nothing new. I mentioned that this argument goes back to the 1990s, and again, we go through all of that data in the May episode. Uh, I think it was May, yeah, it was May 3rd. But uh, another really nice piece of this was in 2012 out of the journal Pediatrics. It was Greenwell et al., all right? And the title of this publication was Intrapartum Temperature Elevation, Epidural Use, and Adverse Outcomes in Term Infants. Now, did you notice that title? Nowhere in there does it say intramniotic infection or suspected choreo. It just named it what it was, Intrapartum Temperature Elevation, epidural use, and adverse outcomes in term infants. Remember, this was back in 2012. And what these authors found, again, published in the journal Pediatrics, was that isolated fever, even if it seemed to be non-infectious, was also linked to adverse neonatal outcomes. Why? Because it's fever as that marker, whether it's inflammatory, whether it's infectious. Again, the thing that ties both of those together is this issue of inflammatory response uh, usually linked to cytokine release, all right? And it's that cytokine mediators, those pro-inflammatory issues that are problematic. And again, look, nothing new. This came out in, in 2012 and even predating this to the 1990s. This is why intrapartum fever, yes, infection is bad. I'm not trying to minimize that. That's got its own set of issues. But fever in and of itself is a point I'm trying to make here. Fever in and of itself is, is worrisome because of the pro-inflammatory nature of, of that fever condition. In this publication from 2012, this was linked to anywhere from a two- to six-fold increased risk of a neonatal hypotonia, assisted ventilation, lower APGAR scores, and I'll, even though things like APGAR scores are subjective, it, it even included an increased risk for neonatal seizures. Well, how's that for a lead-in? My goodness. I mean, we haven't even gotten into the article that we are wanting to talk about, which is in the Gray Journal, and the title is Antibiotic Treatment of Women with Isolated Intrapartum Fever Versus Clinical Choreoamnionitis Maternal and Neonatal Outcomes. This is set to come out based on when we're taping this tomorrow, uh, November 2023, Again, in the Gray Journal, uh, this was actually presented uh, in February earlier on in this year. The abstract was at SMFM's uh, annual meeting, which was a 43rd meeting in San Francisco, right? So if you were there, you're like, hey, that sounds familiar. Well, now it's a, a, a true peer-reviewed uh, manuscript slash publication in the Gray Journal, not the pink but the gray. This data actually does come out of Israel, uh, which just goes to show the great uh, just data and, and academic uh, movement of medicine uh, through the various parts of Israel. Uh, and we'll just leave it at that.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, let's keep on moving as we highlight this piece from Israel. Uh, let's just uh, give you the the concept here. And it's exactly what we've been talking about. Wow, nobody really knows what to do with isolated intrapartum fever. ACOG says that we should treat it. But is that really linked to to some kind of adverse neonatal issue if we don't, or if we don't treat it the same as choreo, right? That's the objective. So as these authors state uh, in the, as they published their 10-year retrospective review, quote, this study compared maternal and neonatal infectious outcomes with microbiological outcomes between women with isolated intrapartum fever and women with clinical choreoamnionitis. This was 10 years in duration as a retrospective study and included patients at or beyond 34 weeks of gestation, all right? So late preterm into term. It's the same definitions that everybody uses here, all right? 38 degrees Celsius, uh, singleton pregnancy with or without other evidences of infection, all right? So it goes through all of that data, just like we mentioned from ACOG's uh, clinical opinion. Uh, but the idea was if those that are treated as clinical choreo who get AMP versus GENT, what do those outcomes look like in terms of metritis and neonatal outcomes compared to those who have isolated maternal fever who, according to this protocol, had single-agent IV ampicillin? These authors did something in choosing their, quote, suspected clinical choreomeninitis, end quote, diagnosis that went a little bit a step further than ACOG. Remember, ACOG said temperature plus at least one of the following, Right which was malodorous vaginal discharge slash amniotic fluid, fetal tachycardia, or leukocytosis. Well, in this publication, clinical choreo was suspected in the presence of, again, temperature greater than 38 degrees, greater than or equal to 38 degrees, and at least two of the following. So they, they made it much more specific, and they included uterine tenderness in this. So just to be clear, there are some differences between ACOGs and what these authors did but by choosing two factors instead of one, that's where they try to increase that specificity of diagnosis, all right? So according to this retrospective review from the Gray Journal, it was a fever 38 degrees Celsius or more, and two of the following, including uterine tenderness, leukocytosis defined as greater than 15,000 uh, or more, fetal tachycardia, and malodorous amniotic fluid or purulent vaginal discharge. So the same thing that ACOG said, except they added the, the uterine tenderness that we've already discussed. And the isolated maternal fever was straight out of the, the explanation from ACOG, so we'll leave it at that. So all to say, it was, treat, it was diagnosed and treated uh, per ACOG guidance, okay? Because the treatment for intrapartum Suspected choreo was AMP, and then once daily gent, uh, typically at 240 milligrams per day of gentamicin. And then those who had isolated maternal fever alone, those simply had single-agent treatment with IV ampicillin. Side editorial comment here, this was a very nice study. They did a lot of things to keep the data pure, including two multivariate analyses that showed, hey, we're onto something here. Very quickly, as I drive home this message, 
what their results showed was that compared with women with clinical choreo, who were about 231, those with isolated intrapartum fever, that was about the same number, 227, okay, 227, those who had intrapartum fever treated just with ampicillin uh, had more issues. They had higher rates of postpartum endometritis. They had uh, more incidences of early onset sepsis. They had more positive choroamniotic membrane swabs for bacteria. And because you kind of pissed it off by giving it AMP, they had a higher rate of ampicillin-resistant E. coli. Right, so it's very interesting because all of those factors had a p-value that was statistically significant. So they really are onto something. Now you think, ah, maybe those with isolated fever had a higher rate of, of, of GBS positivity. And that was a factor. Well, no, it doesn't make any sense because they had ampicillin, which should have covered that anyway. And I'm glad that they said that the rate of positive choroamniotic membrane cultures for GBS was the same. So that's not it. Remember, most intramniotic infections or triple I conditions are polymicrobial. So nice thought, but yeah, that's not it. So what is the take-home message here? Oh, wait, wait, before I give you the, the take-home message here and the main point, that early onset sepsis, that wasn't for mom. Right, y'all get that, that that was for, for the child. EOS, early onset sepsis, was defined as neonatal sepsis during the first 72 hours from birth in preterm neonates and up to seven days in term neonates. They also looked at, of course, NICU admissions. So this was maternal issues as well as uh, uh, biological uh, slash microbial issues and neonatal factors. And yeah, they, they did worse both on the maternal end as well as the neonatal end for those who only had treatment with AMP for those with isolated maternal temperature alone. So again, now that we've said that and clarified that point on early onset sepsis, what's that take home message? I love how these authors stated it because, and as I've said many times before in medicine, man, we love our little boxes, right? We just like to put people, you belong in this box. You're this ethnicity, therefore I'm going to check you for that. You've got this issue on your vitals, so I'm going to go to this. And, and there's a place for that, but people don't live in boxes and, and nor does isolated maternal temperature. It's on a continuum, right, guys? So watch this because I'm going to read you what they say exactly. But doesn't this make sense? Uh, how about thinking that those with isolated maternal temp, that's their first flag. And if you don't do anything or treat it suboptimally, yeah, they're just going to decompensate. Fever means something, even though we know this issue of epidural-related maternal fever. And these authors talk about that. Yes, some women with epidurals get fever in about 20% of the time on average. But, but until we have a way of figuring out that that is absolutely epidural-related versus something else, and we don't have that, nor do I think we will, unless some magical AI platform or new biomarker comes out, we don't know who's who. Hence why even back in 2017, ACOG said, hey, should consider uh, you know, giving these women antibiotics. And this is exactly what these authors concluded. So let me read you exactly from their clinical implications because it's, it's very strong. Quote, Classifying women according to clinical choreo and isolated intrapartum fever can be problematic as a subset of women with isolated intrapartum fever may represent early disease or undiagnosed choreoamnionitis, considering the absence of an accurate method to identify the women who will develop endometritis or early onset sepsis, the index of clinical suspicion should be raised. They go on to say, we suggest that dual treatment be considered in its context to decrease the risk of maternal and neonatal infectious morbidities, end quote. Ah, 
So there you go. Fever is fever. Remember that the CMQCC for hypertension, for urgent hypertension and departum has the see it to beat it uh, phrase, right? That's part of their bundle. See it to be it, uh, to beat it. The other one was see it and believe it. They're all similar. The point is something's going on. So yes, epidural by itself can give you fevers. Don't be sending me any messages. Uh, I read this paper by Bank et al. That showed that fever can come automatically from an epidural. I get it. I get it, homie. I get it. I'm with you. I'm in your side. We're on the same team. But until you can figure out absolutely, as these authors just stated, who is epidural and who is something else, why are you risking this child's uh, uh, neurodevelopment, potentially uh, development neurobehavioral issues, when this pro-inflammatory uh, state uh, is, is at the heart of all this? So what did they come up with? So as they've already stated, quote, until we have a better way to identify those who absolutely do not have some kind of infectious cause of this fever versus those that are, are strictly related to something completely else, like maybe just poking the epidural space until we, we have that figured out. And I hope that we do. Maybe we will. How amazing would that be? Oh, she's got a fever after her epidural. Uh, we drew the, the epidural, the F, uh, the uh, epidural-related maternal fever, ERMF uh, blood test. And yeah, it, it's just that. She doesn't have choreo. Wow. Are you kidding? That is worth an NIH grant right there. Uh, but, but I don't know. We don't have that. And I don't know how you separate those biomarkers because the thing that they join in the middle, remember, your right hand and your left hand, is the central meeting point, the highway where those two feeder roads uh, join. Uh, is is the inflammatory response. And as I mentioned in the May 2023 episode, there is data that fever in and of itself as a marker of this pro-inflammatory state uh, could be an issue. And, and that's the problem here. And even though you you, you can think, well, well how, what if we pre-medicate those epidural patients? We're going to give them Tylenol or antibiotics. Yeah, that's already been looked at. And you got to go back and listen to the May 3rd, 2023 episode because we go through all that data. The short of it is, Isolated maternal fever and clinical choreo, even though it's nice as an academic discussion to place people in these boxes, you got to remember that really there aren't three boxes in a line. It is one, it's one string with a slider on it. And they can go very quickly from suspected, uh, from isolated maternal fever to suspected to true frank choreoamnionitis that's confirmed after delivery, right? That little slider goes up and down that string. All right, guys. Anyway, we've just released this publication. Uh, I thought we'd finish this tomorrow, but it looks like we'll finish today, Mike. So pack it up. I think we'll, we'll get this ready uh, and then shoot this out here. Again, this is out of the Galilee region in Israel. Uh, and the title is Antibiotic Treatment of Women with Isolated Intrapartum Fever versus Clinical Choreo Maternal and Neonatal Outcomes. All right, everyone. So we've covered this issue of isolated maternal fever, which actually validates and vindicates ACOG's stance of should really consider the use of antibiotics for isolated maternal fever since we can't have a way to discriminate to better delineate who is a result of a stress response, who is a result of epidural, and who is truly infectious. And as the data shows, there is evidence that just fever by an inflammatory state in and of itself, we, we need to get ahead of that. All right, podcast family, I hope you found that helpful. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.